0: This morning we're going to be in Psalm 36. If you want to go ahead and find your way there, Psalm 36. A theme that we have seen repeatedly throughout uh, the Psalms is deliverance from wicked enemies. David, time and again, crying out to the Lord, pleading for him to deliver him from uh, from the wicked, from from his enemies. Now, starting with Psalm chapter 1, or Psalm 1 Psalm, chapter 1, Psalm 1, the Psalms hold out two different kinds of people. You have the wicked and you have the righteous. So the righteous, uh, we've seen time and time again, are characterized by their love for God and love for his law. The wicked, on the other side, are characterized by their hatred for God, their hatred for his rule, and their hatred for his anointed, for his, for his king. That we saw very clearly in Psalm chapter 2, that the wicked, they want nothing to do with God. And the effect of this is seen in Psalm 14, which brings out the foolishness of the wicked. Rejection of the rule of God leads to belief that no account will have to be given to God or before God. And not thinking that, Well, I'm going to have to give an account before God one day for my actions just leads to more wickedness. In particular, as we've seen through the Psalms, aimed specifically at the people of God. But we see something a little bit different in Psalm 36. Here, David is not concerned so much with deliverance from wicked people themselves and from their actions uh, against him so much. No, he, he pleads with the Lord for deliverance from wickedness itself. So with that, let's read Psalm 36, which says, To the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes, That is, iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O oh Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O oh God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. O, continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we have free access to your word. You have preserved it for us. You have given it to us. You make it readily available. You make it such and have been kind to us that we have the ability to freely meet week in and week out, really whenever we please, but week in and week out on the Lord's day to open this word, to read it, to see what it says, to understand what that means. And to have it applied to our lives by your spirit. And Lord, we pray that you would do that this morning. I recognize that no words of mine are capable of moving anyone or doing anything. So preach to us all from your word. Open our eyes to what is true. For we see even in this word that we've just read. In your light do we see light. Grant us light today that we would see and understand and have this word applied to us, that we may live righteously to your glory. Amen. So think back just a few weeks to to Psalm 33. In Psalm 33, the the fear of the Lord was heavily emphasized. And there we saw that the the psalm itself defines fear of God as all of him. You know, the absolute effectiveness of his word coupled with his perfect his perfect character it's the basis for this fear of this fear of the lord and what we saw is that the fear of the lord actually serves as a preservative it serves to preserve his people to keep and hold his people fast in his love so the upright actually draw near to god because of the confidence that they have in his love towards them And so what the upright fear is to be found outside of his steadfast love. The fear of the Lord is the recognition of his just wrath that is coming against sinners. And so the upright recognize that to be outside of him is death. To depart from him is to come uh, under his wrath. And so fearing his just judgment that is to come against the wicked, the upright draw near to God. Where they have security and life. And we say that because we see that the fear of God comes back up again here in Psalm 36. This time it says that the wicked have no fear of God before their eyes. There's no awe at his power, there's no concern about his just and righteous wrath that is to come against sin. God simply is not a factor in how the wicked uh, approach life. And so, not fearing God, lacking the fear of God, is the root cause of what David says about the wicked, beginning in verse 1. He says, transgression speaks to the wicked. It, it speaks to them, not the, the law of God. And think for just a minute what, it, what the word transgression means, what the connotation of that is. It's used to describe law-breaking. Going the opposite direction from the law of God actually appeals to the heart of the wicked person. They're going to delight in anything and do delight in anything that is opposed to the rule of God. And so they find transgression enticing because they have no fear of God. There's no concern that anything is going to come of their lawlessness. And so as the psalm progresses on, we see that this lack of fear of God, the transgression speaking to their heart, uh, it it works itself out in three ways. The first being pride and arrogance, which we see that from verse 2 where it says, the wicked man, he flatters himself in his own eyes. So the wicked have, have become so impressed with themselves that they are actually unable to see their own sin. They are unable to see it and to hate it. And so this is, just, this is describing someone who is totally convinced. My way is right. And not just that their way is right, but they are super proud of themselves for landing on the way that they have determined is right. Look at me, I did it, I figured it out, this is the right way, all that I do is good. And so, they will not listen to anyone seeking to correct them. They're going to dismiss any appeal to wisdom and to godliness because they have no appetite for it. It's not what draws them in, transgression does. And so they can't see or hate their sin, cannot hate see or hate their wrongdoing. Repentance is the furthest thing from their mind because they see no need for it. This is sad because they're trapped and they have no idea. And we're all familiar with this. We know the slogans of our day. You do you. Live your truth. The truth is relegated to the individual and you cannot question my truth and this gives way to pride individuals and and companies we see this all the time falling all over themselves to show support for whatever cause whatever group this ranges from social media posts that are bragging about donations made to specific causes or just Pictures or icons or whatever just to show I'm with this. I support this. I champion this. It extends to marketing campaigns. Because it's all about personal promotion. Look at me. I figured it out. I'm on the right side. I'm on the right side of history. I support the right kinds of things. So you should listen to me. You should give me your clicks. You should give me your likes. You should buy my stuff. All the while, totally blind to sin, both their own as well as that of those and who and what they're promoting. The second, what we see is that no fear of God comes to bear on the person's speech. So comes to bear on their attitudes, their appetites, the things that they delight and desire in. Now, works itself out in their speech. They speak lies and they cause trouble. And so maybe that's flattery. Maybe they, they flatter themselves, and so they flatter others as well. Rather than confronting someone for wickedness, they puff others up. They gossip and slander, causing tension rather than peace. They pick fights rather than bearing patiently with others. And it's all because of the rejection of what is wise and good. We see that in verse 3. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. You can't have wisdom. You can't act wisely and do good apart from the fear of the Lord. Proverbs teaches us this Proverbs 1:7 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge Fools despise wisdom and instruction Proverbs 9:10 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight The fear of the Lord requires the recognition that all of the Lord's ways are right and good. But the wicked person, who is enticed by transgression, is drawn away from that to their own desires, to their own devices. And with their speech, they draw others away as well. And third and finally, the wicked man is consumed by wicked thoughts. Even when he's resting, he's thinking about and devising plans that are wicked. And again, we have to remember that this isn't necessarily talking about plotting against the righteous. Plotting against those who are faithful to God. It's as simple as thinking through living life in a way with just no regard to God and his law. No regard for God and his law. David is getting at, what he's hinting at, what he's dealing with here, not hinting at, but getting at, is the full corruption of of the wicked man's mind. They are drawn to what is evil, and so they do not reject evil. They don't turn away because they cannot recognize it for what it is. Because they've rejected the rule of God, they go in a way that is not good. What this psalm then proceeds to do is just show how foolish this is. You know, David pivots in verse 5 from the way of the wicked to the character of God. And consider again the way in which he describes the Lord. Your steadfast love extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds, your righteousness like the mountains of God, your judgments like the great deep. David is pointing to the greatness of God's character He uses images from creation to show how immense the attributes of God truly are. His steadfast love reaches to the heavens, to the highest of heights. It reaches everywhere. There's nowhere that it does not go. There's nothing that it does not touch. The same is said of his faithfulness. His love is great and steadfast because he is faithful. His righteousness soars like the mountains. His judgments, his wisdom is like the great deeps. It runs so deep, you can't plumb its depths. You can't get to the bottom of it. It does not run out. And so so David presents God as grand, as huge, as magnificent, as splendid, as worthy of all. He alone is worthy of worship and devotion. His rule is to be embraced and celebrated, not rejected, because of who he is. His rule is good, because he is good. And so on the one hand, David is is speaking to the greatness of God over and above his creation. He is greater than his creation. He doesn't depend on us for not one thing. But he's not far away from his creation either. He's near. His steadfast love reaches everywhere. And it comes to bear on all of his creation. We see that in verse 6 where he says, Man and beast, you save O Lord. And what he's talking about here. ...is what we would refer to as, we'd call, the, the, the common grace of God, which is distinct from the saving grace of God. The saving grace of God being His faithfulness, His loving kindness to pardon the sins of His people through faith in Christ Jesus, who atones for our sins in His death in our place. So, God shows saving grace in calling out a people for himself that he saves through the blood of Christ, through his death in the place of his people. Common grace is the kindness of God that he shows in his providential care for all of his creation. And the reason we can say that that's what David is talking about here is the reference to the beasts, the reference to the animals, who do not benefit from the saving grace of God in the sense that There was never a transgression, there was not a law for them to break, it was not given to them. Saving grace is for the people of God who have gone astray and been saved through Christ Jesus. So it's clear here that David must be dealing with God's common grace. And so when we think about common grace and and, and what this is and and what is being talked about, think of Matthew 5.45 where Jesus says of the Father, He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So, this is the grace of God that all creatures benefit from. I mean, you think of all the kindnesses of God that you've experienced just this morning. Did you wake up in a soft bed under warm covers? Did you have warm water to wash your face with? Did you have coffee to drink? Or if you're one of those people, tea. That's okay, too. It's a grace of the Lord. It's not coffee, but I'm sure it's still good. Maybe. Did you have breakfast food that actually tasted good? We had paved roads to drive on. A common grace of God, thanks to people like Robert Maxwell. The sun rose on a new day. We have air conditioning in this room while it's 10 million degrees outside. Praise the Lord for that. These and many other kindnesses are experienced by people regardless of their love for God. Kindnesses like these are born out of God's steadfast love that reaches everywhere. And so in in pointing to this in verse 6, David points to the dependence that creation has on its creator, Man and beast are saved by God. They are cared for according to the love, faithfulness, righteousness, and wisdom of God. But the wicked man ignores these things. He does not see. They fail to recognize their dependence on God for life, for breath, and for every good thing. So the wicked man is more drawn to transgression and evil than the steadfast love of God. David is holding out the way of the wicked and showing just how foolish it is. But then there's another turn in the psalm. First is the the greatness of God's care for all of his creation. But then in verses 7 to 9, we see the greatness of God in his care for his own people. His steadfast love is very precious to the one who has refuge in him. This captures the nearness of the love of God to his people. It is everywhere. It is soaring to the highest of heights that all of creation, in a sense, benefit from. And yet, in a very special way, It is brought near to those who have shelter in God. And so what does it look like to have refuge in the shadow of God's wings? Well, verse 8 tells us that it's to feast on the abundance of his house, to drink from the river of his delights. Verse 9 then explains what it means to drink from this river. It's the fountain of life. It's the source of light. God gives life and light to his people. I know this reference to light means truth. Wisdom and knowledge of anything that is true has its source in God. It is found in him. And he supplies this to his people. And so, the receiving of this this light from God, God giving wisdom and truth, establishing and sustaining his people in what? is true, turns back and produces delight in God. As they drink from the rivers of his delight, as we drink from the rivers of his delight, as we come to understand what is right and true, it produces and grows and flourishes delight in him. Which is not true of the wicked, who instead delight in transgression. So what we have to see in this passage is who who is acting here. God is the one acting. He is the one providing for His people. He is the one who gives refuge to His own in the shadow of His wings. His people are fed from His house, from His table. He's the one who provides the meal. He's the one who gives drink. He's the one who has and gives the fountain of life. He is the light who gives light to his people. A light that produces delight in him. Delight in the things that are true. But then it raises the question, who is the one who receives this sort of care from God? And David tells us in verse 10, He asks the Lord to continue to show his steadfast love to those who know him, to those who are upright in heart, David sees that light and life are from God alone and that the upright depend on God to have it. They are desperate for God to give it to him. And so he prays in verse 11, very simply, Lord, please keep me. It's an appeal to the Lord to preserve him from wickedness. David's only hope to not go the way of the wicked is for the Lord to sustain him in the righteousness that he supplies. It is the Lord who takes the initiative to supply life and light. And so understanding that, David sees that he is dependent on the Lord to continue giving. If the Lord does not act, then he would be just like the wicked man from verses 1 through 4. And look again. The wicked man was characterized by his arrogance. What's the first thing that David mentions? What does he say? Lord, keep me from the foot of arrogance. His plea is, Lord, keep me in your steadfast love so that I don't start flattering myself. I mean, can you imagine... How easy that might be for the anointed king. God set me on the throne. He's made these great promises to me. I must be a pretty awesome guy. I must be pretty great. And become blind to his own sin. And to reach the point where he can't hate it. He also asks to be kept from the hand of the wicked. And specifically, what he's getting at here is that the hand of the wicked not drive him towards the way Of the wicked man. And now you might read this uh, potentially in a couple of ways. It might be as the wicked and and arrogant man who comes against David, like you have in many of the other Psalms, including Psalm 35 that we saw last week. If you're reading from the NIV or maybe the CSB, um, the way that that they have that translated, it it tends to, to lead itself in that direction. So this could be talking about a scenario where the hardship that's created by the attacks of the wicked on David eventually leads him to the place where he just feels totally abandoned by God. And so feeling abandoned, he turns away from God. You know, maybe saying, keep me from, from that in the midst of my trial. Keep me from turning away. Or it, it could also just be that it's the wicked person who comes and entices him and says, come this way. Come, come over here with me. Come come be like Me, and he then is himself enticed by transgression. You might see it either way, but regardless, what what David is emphasizing is he needs the Lord to sustain him. That's the only thing keeping him from being like the wicked man. And that this is his intent becomes evident because of verse 12. You should look at verse 12 and see that it contrasts with verse 9. In verse 9, the one kept by the Lord continues to receive life and light from him, but the end of the wicked man in verse 12 is destruction and death. Those kept by God live. And so it's only in God acting to show steadfast love that his people experience the blessings of it. Man is wholly dependent on God. You would say and have maybe heard, salvation is of God in totality, from beginning to end. Our salvation is of God. And that's what we recognize when we look at verses 1 through 4. The person that David is describing is everyone apart from the grace of God, it's who we all are by nature. Paul takes this up in Romans. Now look again at verse 1. There David writes, There is no fear of God before their eyes. Well, when we read that, you might have thought, That sounds familiar. Doesn't Paul say that? Or you might have just known, Hey, Paul says that. And you would be right. Paul quotes this in, in Romans 3.18. And very important that we understand the, the context in which Paul cites Psalm 36, one. It comes at the very end of his summary of, about the sinfulness of mankind that reaches all the way back to Romans 1.18. And so over the course of, uh, the course of a couple of chapters, uh, Paul exposes the totality of mankind's corruption, first with the Gentile and then with the Jew. And so when we get to Romans 3 and we get to Romans 10 through 18, it really serves as a summary statement of the argument that he's been making for over the course of several verses about the totality of mankind's corruption. And what does he say there? None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become There is no fear of God before their eyes. David and Paul are both drawing on the corruption that has plagued mankind from the moment that man fell. Now, after Adam fell, corruption spread like wildfire through humanity. We read in Genesis 6:5 The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so the Lord judges all of mankind for their wickedness. He floods the earth, killing everyone except for Noah and his family. But what do we learn after the flood? In Genesis eight twenty one, the Lord says of man, The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Flood judged the world, but it didn't change the corruption. It didn't fix it. That's in the heart of every man. Our whole person is corrupted by sin. Our actions, our thoughts, our motivations, our desires, all of it. All corrupted. This explains transgression speaking to the heart of the wicked man and is not rejecting evil because it's appealing to the corruption that is already there. It doesn't have to create anything. It latches on to what's already there. The Bible goes on to describe all of corrupt humanity as being in darkness. In Ephesians 5, 8, Paul says, For at one time... You were darkness. In Colossians 1.13, he writes about God delivering his people, and from where has God delivered his own? From the domain of darkness. John writes in 1 John 2 that the one who professes love for God and yet hates his brother is still in darkness. That's who we are, apart from the grace of God. We are. Are in darkness. We don't know the truth about ourselves, about God, about salvation, about eternal life. We're wandering around, groping in the darkness. And you might say searching for a door, but we're not because we love the darkness. And so look again at verse 10. The upright feast on the abundance of the Lord's house and drink from his delights. There's no one who is upright. Mankind is wholly corrupted. We need to be made righteous. We need God to give his light to us. And we need God to sustain us in the light. And he does in Christ. In John 1, verse 9, we read the true light which gives light to everyone. It's coming into the world. Jesus identifies himself as this light in John 8, 12. He says, I am the light of the world. Life and light are found in Christ alone. We who have gone astray, who love the darkness, wandering about in it, God has shown steadfast love and mercy to Sending His own Son, God in the flesh, to save us from the dark. To give to us light. And that is Christ alone. Who as the light is the source of all truth. He makes known the glorious perfection of God and He does this in everything that He did. And in everything that He taught. But also in what he taught, he revealed our inability to measure up to the standard of the kingdom of heaven. But rather than saying, hate it for you, there you are, at least now you know. No, rather than leaving us trapped in darkness, he perfectly obeyed and displayed the righteous standard of God. In his actions, in his words, in his thoughts, in his motivations, he did what we could never do because of our corruption. He fulfilled righteousness for us. He suffered and died in the place of his people to pay for our sins. He was raised for our justification, making us right with the Father, covering those who repent and believe in his own righteousness. In Him, the righteousness of God is made known. Our unrighteousness is made known. And the righteousness that we need in order to feast on the abundance of God's house is supplied. We are brought into light by the grace of God in Christ. And this is all the initiative of God. If we read further in John chapter 1, we would see John 1, 12 and 13. Talking about this true light coming into the world, it says... But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Those who come under the steadfast love of God never been able to bring themselves. It's always been by the grace of God. But it's not just the bringing, it's the keeping. Jesus says in John 6, 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Praise the Lord. Our coming and remaining in the light of God is because of the grace and mercy of God. The righteousness of Christ is fixed upon those who trust in Him for salvation. The love of God is set on those covered in the perfect righteousness of Christ. And as Paul says, there's not one single thing that can separate us from the love of God that is for us in Christ. We are kept in the light by the grace of God in Christ And it's also in Christ that the people of God live righteously. Consider the rest of John 8, 12, where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. His people are a new creation in him having a new heart that receives and understands and loves the law of God because it's a new heart that loves and delights in God. In Christ, we understand and apply the Word of God by the Spirit that He gives to us. In Christ, we see our sins and repent of them as the Spirit leads us into righteousness. We live in light. By the grace of God in Christ. David's prayer in verses 10 and 11, it's answered in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The steadfast love of God toward his own is secured in Christ. Christ is the only truly upright one who deserves to have the steadfast love of God, to have a seat at the table. But in making his people upright in the covering of his own righteousness, he brings us into the steadfast love of God. There we are kept from returning again to the way of the wicked that he has brought us from through the shedding of his own blood. It's in Christ that we drink from the river of God's delight because the light that is ours in Christ produces joy and delight in God. He gives us that drink and He alone. And having joy and delight in the light of God, the transgression of that used to speak to our hearts, that used to draw us like a magnet, its power. So we see it for what it is. Moth-eaten, worthless, and no source of true joy. It is not a river of delight. That is found in Christ who saves. This will produce humility in the people of God. Our access to the river of God's delights, to life and light, are only because Christ has seated us at his table. We don't earn our place. And this means we can't put confidence in our own performance. We can't look to ourselves in our actions and assume, this, this is the source of my righteousness. Look at all the good that I've done. And we depend on Christ for righteousness. But we are all tempted to do this, are we not? To put our confidence, put our trust in our performance, not the performance of Christ in our place. And we grow confident when we feel like we're stringing together good days. We've been patient with our kids. We're kind to that rude coworker who says mean things to us. We feel like we've conquered an old sin. And so we grow confident. Surely God is now pleased with me. Look at all that I have done and accomplished. He will give me a seat at his table. And Those are good things. Yes, absolutely. But when we see ourselves as righteous because we do good, not because of the work of Christ, the temptation to flatter ourselves is... Knocking at the door. We're only able to live righteously in Christ because of the righteousness that He has supplied. So, rather than patting ourselves on the back, giving ourselves our attaboys, there we go, we really are the bomb.com, give thanks to God for His grace by which He's growing us in the righteousness of Christ. Friend, beware of pride, for it is always lurking. Pray and ask the Lord to keep you from arrogance, that you do not take His kindness to you and twist it, becoming puffed up with pride. Because the reality is, We have a whole lot more that is yet to be worked out of us. Don't flatter yourself over the ways in which God has been kind to you and is working out the righteousness of Christ that He has granted to you by His grace and become so puffed up that you become blind to the other sins in your life. But there's one particularly sneaky way that this sort of self-confidence kind of works itself in. Maybe not beating on the front door, but rather slipping in the back. And as we read through a psalm like this, you probably think of someone, you know, when the text describes the wicked man who flatters himself, who cannot see his own sin. You know, maybe it's a Family member, maybe it's a, a coworker. Or maybe just generally speaking, it's those who are outside the people of God who don't reject evil. And you think to yourself, it's right there. Don't they see? How could they be so blind? But don't give in to the temptation to flatter yourself by trying to compare your righteousness next to others. For one, When we do this, we're losing sight of the fact that we depend on Christ for righteousness. If it wasn't for the grace of God, we would be in the same place as the person that we're comparing ourselves to. We were blind to our sin. He gave us light. It's only the grace of the Lord that keeps us from wandering off into evil. Be wary of seeking to justify yourself by comparing yourself next to someone else. Jesus warns us of this in his parables in Luke uh, 18, verses 12 and 13. write it down and look it up later. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee who stands at the altar, eyes to heaven, and says, Thank you, God, that I'm not like the unjust, that I'm not like the murderer, that I'm not like the adulterer, that I'm not like this tax collector tax collector, keeps his eyes down, beating his chest. He says, Lord, forgive me. And Jesus says, that one went away justified, not the one who exalted himself in comparison to others. You might remember from the Beatitudes, who are those who are blessed? The poor in spirit those who recognize their spiritual poverty and their dependence upon God for His grace. If you find yourself doing this, repent. Because the Lord doesn't evaluate you based on the righteousness of the person next to you. We're evaluated against the righteousness of Christ, and we don't measure up to that. We don't deserve a seat at the Lord's feast because someone else has lost it just because there's an empty chair and someone needs to be there. Our place is secured in Christ. He brings us to the table. He gives us drink from the river of his delights. He gives us light, not on the basis of our relative goodness compared to someone else. It's on the basis of his mercy to cover our sins and his righteousness. Don't become so fixated on the sins of others that you fail To see your own. And the reality is. We still need correction. We all have sins that need to be exposed. And we all need help to see them. It's only because God keeps us. That we see and turn from sin. It's the work of the spirit. Working through the word of God. That exposes our sin. It's the spirit working through the people of God. Wielding the word of God. That exposes sin. Our sin, He uses these means to lead us into righteousness. So says, your sins are exposed, resist evil. When your sins are exposed, confess them, turn away from evil, pray for help. We depend on the Spirit to put away our sins. So pray and trust Christ who gives help to His own. Let's pray. Father, thank You for your loving kindness to us. Thank you for your steadfast love by which you preserve us in your love, a place we could not bring ourselves, but that you have brought us into. Lord, help us. Lord, keep us. Lord, deliver us from the desires of the flesh to give ourselves over to transgression. We trust that you do this. We have full confidence that you do this in and through Christ, who suffered in our place, that we may have life and light in his death and resurrection. Thank you, God. Amen.